Hello, I'm Kyle Caldwell, and this is On The Money, a weekly look how to get the best out of your savings and investments. In this episode, I welcome back friend of the pod, Sam Benstead. As always, with On The Money, we try to give you the insights and information to help you make better investment decisions. So this week, we're going to get some things off our chests as we pick out our biggest bugbears with how the fund management industry saves DIY investors. These are mine and Sam's personal opinions, and I'd be keen to hear from you as to whether you agree with them or not. Or indeed, you may have your own bugbear that we've not covered. In any case, it'd be great to hear from you, and you can get in touch by emailing otm at ii.co.uk. So we're going to start off with jargon. Now, of course, jargon is commonplace within pretty much any industry, but I feel that in fund management, there's a lot of it. So terms such as bottom-up, top-down, and tracking error are used in everyday conversation among fund managers and those that work in the industry, but they are baffling to those not in the know. Jargon is a barrier that stops people from investing or might might completely stop them, but it definitely would deter some people from investing. Now, to be fair to fund firms, there are compliance standards that need to be adhered to, when communicating with uh, retail investors. But in my opinion, the language used is often at the expense of clarity for consumers who struggle to understand the jargon. Now, for both myself and Sam, a key part of our day jobs is untangling all this jargon. So when we write articles, do video interviews with fund managers, appear on this podcast, we aim to keep things as simple as possible and get our points across in an accessible and effective manner. So Sam, what would you say is the worst piece of fund management jargon that you've come across? Hi, Kyle. It's great to be back on the podcast. And this is a great episode to be on as well, because there are lots of irritating things that fund managers do. The first one for me, and it's a big one, is that they use the Greek alphabet to explain what's going on in their portfolios. You might hear alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet. And this basically means outperformance against their chosen benchmark. So it's what you're paying an active fund management fee for. You want the fund manager to generate alpha, you know, excess returns above the benchmark. So say they're investing in the FTSE All Share, the FTSE All Share goes up 10% in a year, your chosen fund goes up 15%, then they've generated five percentage points of alpha. You may also hear beta, so the second letter of the Greek alphabet. This is a bit more complicated, but it basically assesses the volatility of a stock or a portfolio. So a beta of one means that the stock or portfolio moved exactly in line with the index. If it's been more volatile than the index, then it would have a beta over one and less volatile means that it is less than one. So defensive shares or a defensive portfolio might have a beta lower than one. That would be their target. It means that the portfolio is less volatile than the chosen index, which is a good thing if you want defensive investments. Another thing that gets on my nerves, and I remember when I started out in the industry, this was something that definitely confused me, is when fund managers say that a stock re-rated instead of saying it simply fell or rose in value. So re-rating just suggests that the market took a different view of the stock than the fund manager, and then that caused the share price to rise or fall. But generally, I think it's used to disguise using words like, we lost money. 
So they may have invested in a couple of companies and they might be saying, well, you know, these shares re-rated over the past year, when actually what they mean is that they fell in value and they probably lost some money. It'd be much simpler if they just said things went up or went down. And as well as um, Greek, there's quite a lot of Latin in fund management lingo as well. One example is around um, disclose and charges. So that there's usage of the words ex ante and ex post. For those not in the know, ex post in Latin means after the fact and ex ante means before the fact. I think they could probably drop the Latin there. It's a few more words, but I think it, it doesn't make the fund management industry cleverer using Latin or Greek. I think it would just be better if it was um, put into everyday language that people use. I mean, for me personally, this probably isn't the worst case of um, fund management jargon, but one that one that, re- that I don't like is some fund management firms describe a fund manager as running a sleeve of the portfolio. So what this essentially means is that they run a portion of the portfolio. So, you know, let's say it's got a growth and an income focus. The fund manager might just, you know, might just run half the portfolio and is just focusing on the growth side. And then there's another fund manager that's focusing on the income side. But yeah, when I heard someone first say, you know, the fund manager's a sleeve manager, I just, that one baffled me. And in terms of jargon, you know, I'm, I'm still learning jargon 12 years on from, you know, entering this industry. A new one that I am um, that you know I came across at the end of last year. This was with an interview with um, Duncan McInnes, who is co-manager of the Ruffer Investment Company. He mentioned that one of um, his best calls last year was that he um, was an investment called Payer Swaptations. In in short, and you know in plain English, what these do is this this is a type of investment that rises in value as bond yields rise, so they're a hedge against bond yields rising which um, you know, benefited Ruffer Investment Company last year because bond, bond yields rose quite significantly in response to um, interest rates going up. But I'd completely agree with Sam. I think DIY investors, they would be better saved if the communication was in a clearer and more concise manner. Ultimately, people want to be, you know, want to know how their money's being invested and they want that to be done as simply as possible. I think a good asset test would be if fund management companies didn't use words or terminology that a beginner investor wouldn't be able to understand. This moves us on to our next grumble. Fund management companies, some are better than this than others, but I think there's definitely something we can grumble about in terms of some fund firms just don't update their information in a timely manner. So fund fact sheets. So this is a, a document that's a couple of pages long. It spells out how the fund invests usually has the top 10 holdings in terms of um, percentage weightings. But in some instances, th- these fund fact sheets, they're not published for four weeks, six weeks after the event. Some fund firms are better than, than others. So um, just an example, uh, Nick Train's fact sheets are published at the start of the month for the previous month. And the same with Terry Smith as well at Fundsmith Equity. But you know, I do find with some of the larger fund management companies, Maybe again, it's an issue in terms of because it's a big company, it's harder for them to get this information out quickly. But sometimes it is very much after the event and they're, you know, four to six weeks out of date. What's your thoughts on that, Sam? Yeah, I think it's shocking. I think you shouldn't be waiting a month to find out what your fund got up to the month prior. You want to know what the top 10 holdings are, you want to know what the fund manager thought about the month's trading and, and economics and, and market behavior. And it shouldn't take too long to do this. It shouldn't take too long at all. 
Another thing I'd like to see on a fun fact sheet, and, and like you said, Carl, some of the smaller managers are better at this stuff. So Terry Smith, Nick Train, they're great at this, is that I'd like an update from the fund manager about what they actually did over that month. So I'd like to know what they bought and what they sold. Um, you're paying them a fee. You should you should know what they're up to and they should be able to disclose this. I think, like you said, compliance can be a factor here. Often these companies run hundreds of different funds. If they come out and publicly say they, they sold one company, then it might upset the the, the company they sold, or it might not reflect what other other fund managers in their in their investment firm are doing. So that's something that might be working against them here. And also, you know, I think the probably one of the main reasons is is that they don't want to be exposed if they made the wrong wrong call. So actually coming out every month and saying we sold this or we bought this, and then allowing investors to track how they actually performed, and it'd be really easy to do that, is actually a reason not to be that transparent. But, you know, like I said before, you're, you're paying an active fund management fee. You should know what you're paying for. I completely agree. It's your money and fund management companies should be telling you what they're investing in, what the changes have been to the portfolio on a monthly basis would be ideal. But I appreciate that with some funds, particularly ones that are bigger, it may take more time for them to reveal what a new holding is if they're still building up a position but transparency is key. And I think the fund management industry has improved in some respects on transparency, but in other in a lot of other areas, it's there's still much more room for improvement needed. I also think with um, funds that invest in a sustainable manner, I would like to see them also give more examples of, okay, this is our approach to investing in a sustainable fashion. And here's how we're executing it. Here are the companies we've spoken to over the past X months. Here's what we're engaging with them on. And this is what we're challenging them on um, in terms of trying to improve their sustainability. I'd welcome you know, sustainable funds to, to move more in that direction, because I think that will give a better insight into what the fund manager's doing, rather than supplying a lot of information that you know just explains their approach without giving the stock examples. And a final point for me on this is that, you know, I think quality is better than quantity. And one of our listeners got in touch with me on this point. He pointed out, in his view, some of the investment trust reports that he reads, um, they're getting a bit too long. Um, he mentioned that you know some of them are over 100 pages. And you know the point he made, which I completely agree with, is that investors surely just want to know what investments are held, how's the investment trust performing, is the investment trust solvent? That's ultimately what they want to know rather than lots and lots of information. And he mentioned that um, one of the executive directors of an investment trust that he um, he spoke to, he said that um, in terms of the, the length of the annual report, he quipped that it was like being in the army and using camouflage to hide stuff that you didn't want the enemy to see. So that was a bit of a bit of a quip and a bit of a joke. It's an important point, really, that, you know, if there's a lot of pages to read, then the actual golden nuggets and the information that you want to find, you mightn't find them because you might be deterred from reading that much information. We're now going to move on to share classes. Funds have different share classes, four or five in some cases. Um, there are various letters attached to these share classes, so lots of the alphabets used. Um, so R class, I class, C class, A class, to name a few. Now, with share classes, it's actually a common question. It's probably the most common question I've been asked over the years um, when we've invited readers to get in touch. I mean, my, my sort of view would be, you know, the best course of action is to simply find the cheapest share class that you can find on Interactive Investor 
And then you've got to decide between choosing the income produced by the fund or opting for it to be reinvested by picking the ACH or accumulation share class. But it is a minefield, isn't it, Sam, share classes? Some of these share classes, well, have hedged and unhedged versions. And I do think the danger is that you buy the wrong share class. Yeah, and it's it's not like jargon where it's just it could be a misunderstanding and you go out and you're doing your own research and and you find out what's going on. This really could be quite financially important for you if you pick the wrong share class. So I'm not picking on Fidelity, but you know, they're they're a big index fund provider and they have two different share classes for their main index funds. They have an A class, which is bundled. This includes extra fees that financial intermediaries would pay which are kind of a bit more redundant now and you don't need to pay them. And they have a P share class, which is the direct share class to Fidelity, where you're just paying for the fund management fee. But investors might not know that. And if they see the A share class, they might think that's the logical one to buy. But actually, the A share classes are more expensive. So if we take um, one of their big global index funds, Fidelity Index World, the P share class costs just 0.12%, making one of the cheapest ways to track the global markets. But the A share class costs 0.3%, making it a relatively expensive way of doing that. If you didn't do your research, then you may be paying more than double the fees that you should be paying. And when it comes to fund management charges, you know, there's a serious lack of competition among active funds. So most of them charge an ongoing charges figure of around 0.8 to 1%. Now, remember that that ongoing charges figure does not include transaction costs. So that is not the full charge that you're paying. Um, and you don't know from the outset what that full charge will be because you don't know how often the full manager will buy and sell shares. Now, one aspect that I don't like about fund charges is that economies of scale are generally not passed on. For instance, you know, with open-ended funds, even if the fund grows from, say, 100 million to 10 billion, the fund charge generally remains the same. Whereas, you know, when it goes from 100 million to 10 billion, there are cost savings that are made through those greater economies of scale. And in my view, I think it'd be great if the fund management industry started passing on some of those cost savings back to investors in the form of lower charges. And also on charges, you know, I think it is easy to overlook charges, especially as they are quoted as a percentage. But the thing to bear in mind is that it really can make a big difference in pounds and pence over the long term if you're in a fund that's charging more versus one that's charging less and you get broadly a similar outcome in terms of the total returns. Although in terms of economies of scale, um, the same cannot be said about investment trusts. So a number of investment trusts reduce their charges as the underlying assets grow. And yeah, I'd like to see you know the open-ended fund industry sort of mimic what investment trusts have been doing on that. They've been doing it for a number of years, but in particular, the last five or six years, more investment trusts have moved to it. It's called a so-called tier fee model. Now, the next thing we're going to focus on is dividend yields. So Sam, the way that um, dividend yield data is displayed, it varies a lot, doesn't it? Particularly with bond funds, which frankly is unhelpful for the DIY investors. That's right. So income investing is is obviously very important to a lot of people, particularly at the moment with, with all this inflation that, that we're having. But actually finding out what a equity or bond fund is going to pay you really isn't a straightforward task. So on the equity side, 
you know, some funds might not even put the dividend yield on the on the fact sheet, even though they hold companies which definitely pay dividends. And there's a few reasons they might do that, but often they're not explained too well. So some take fees out of the dividends, some actually just reinvest them for you automatically and they, they don't pay an income. So that there are reasons for it, but it can be quite tricky to know exactly what they are. In the bond world, things get even trickier. There are a few key yields you should be aware of when you're investing in a bond fund. So just quickly, I'll go through them. So you might see a historic yield, which is what a fund um, would have yielded over the past 12 months if you've been holding on to the fund. You might see the yield to maturity, which is a snapshot of what the portfolio yields today if all the bonds there were held to maturity. And then you also might see, and this is the really key one you're going to be wanting to watch if you want to collect an income from your bond fund, and that's the distribution yield, which is a snapshot of what you're going to get paid in income over the next 12 months. So that's the key one, but often it might be hidden among other yields. You might not see the other yields at all. So really finding out what you're going to get paid by the bond fund that you own isn't actually the easiest task. And if you're investing in bonds at the moment, then you probably want to invest in them for the income, but finding out what you're going to be paid isn't that straightforward. It's a real shame that, I mean, I think if, if I was looking at a, a fund and you know I was investing it for mainly for income, I couldn't find the dividend yield data on the fact sheet, I wouldn't invest. You need to know that information before you're buying. And finally, another bugbear that I have, which I share with Sam, is that some fund management companies, they compare the performance of a certain fund against the sector average rather than an index. Personally, I think this is a bit of a cop-out. I think if you're buying an active fund, you don't know in advance whether it's going to outperform or not, but you hope that over the long term it will beat a passive fund, so an index fund or an exchange trader fund, that's ultimately the outcome that you want to achieve. I think that is ultimately the benchmark. Now, most funds, they do compare their performance against the benchmark, but we both have seen instances where funds are comparing it against the sector average, which does have a mixture of active and passive funds within it, but it's a, an easier benchmark for them to beat, arguably, than an index yeah, and that's especially true of funds investing in the US and globally, where the benchmarks have been so strong because of the rise of these, these giant technology stocks. So actually comparing yourself against the average ma manager will make you look better than comparing yourself against the index. And for people at home, you can't buy the average manager. So it's not really something that you, you should be looking too closely at. Your, your real benchmark is the cheapest passive fund that's investing in the market that your active manager is trying to beat. Thanks to Sam, and thank you for listening to this episode of On The Money. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating or a review and follow the show in your podcast app. If you get a chance, tell a friend about it too. You can join the conversation, ask questions, and tell us what you would like to talk about via email on otm at ii.co.uk. And in the meantime, you can find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interact Investor website at ii.co.uk. See you next week.